I hate to break it to you, but you can do everything right in life and still end up an utter failure. Merit alone doesn't always guarantee success. The world is an unfair place, and even though we pretend our sports are somehow immune to this reality, favoritism and every other advantage that can't exist does. The UFC is a perfect example. Winning doesn't guarantee you anything. Just ask Leon Edwards. But if you're in favor with the right folks, your wins are worth a hell of a lot more. And so today we're going to take a look at 10 fighters who of course did everything they could to succeed on the merits of their own abilities, but were given special treatment along the way as well leading to opportunities and situations not afforded by the other fighters on the roster. These 10 athletes got what Tony Ferguson hilariously coined as Dana White privilege. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are 10 fighters who got preferential treatment by the UFC. Number 10, Greg Hardy. Following an impressive, brief, and controversial stint in the NFL as a Pro Bowl-caliber defensive end, Greg Hardy announced that he would pursue a career in mixed martial arts. A few years previous, Hardy was arrested for assault and communicating threats, eventually being found guilty before the charges were dropped. When Hardy appealed the decision, and the prosecutor's office was unable to get the victim to testify in court, determining that she and Hardy had reached a civil settlement. While the incident was expunged from his record, the stigma of abuse stuck, and when the UFC signed him to a contract following his first-ever pro bout, which took place on the Contender Series, Hardy was immediately a light rod for controversy in the media and amongst fans. Hardy would debut as the co-main event for the first ever ESPN card against Alan Crowder, which was controversial because he only had three pro fights, and Rachel Ostevich, a recent victim of domestic violence, appeared on the card as well. Hardy would be disqualified due to an illegal knee after a sloppy two-round affair that Dana White was absolutely beaming over afterwards, saying that now we know he can fight. He can fight. He's an athlete. Not only can he punch hard, but he can take a big punch. Hardy continued to appear high on main cards against lower-tier talent, despite his inexperience, following a victory being overturned due to his using an inhaler mid-fight. With just two official wins in the UFC, Greg was given a co-main event against Alexander Volkov, which he would lose handedly. Between his controversial past being seemingly ignored by the UFC, and the fact that he's a really green fighter that's constantly being thrown into marquee spots, it was hard to not include Hardy on this list. Number 9. Darren Till Sometimes preferential treatment can really backfire, and the case of Darren Till is a great example of that. Till's early UFC rise felt very Conor McGregor. He was this huge guy for his division, he was cocky, he could talk shit. So maybe if we had three or four months to work on this guy, yeah, I would have destroyed him in the first round. He was a devastating and dynamic striker, and he had a whole community behind him that went nuts over anything he did. After he destroyed Donald Cerrone about that headline fight night Poland in what was just Darren's fifth UFC fight, the rocket ship was strapped to his back, and Till was on a course for stardom. The UFC did the show in Liverpool specifically for him, and after he beat Stephen Thompson, despite only having those two high-level wins under his belt, they threw him into a disastrous welterweight title fight against Tyron Woodley. After the champ beat the brakes off him, you would think the UFC realized the error of their ways, and that while he still had a bright future, maybe give Till some time to really come into his own. Nope, UFC London headliner against Jorge Masvidal next. That shocking KO loss would see Darren bump down to co-main event status at UFC 244, the biggest card of 2019. Following his split decision win over Kelvin Gast, him, though, it was right back to headlining, this time in a defeat to Robert Whitaker. Till is definitely a top-tier talent, but he's also going to continue to get a ton of huge opportunities because the UFC sees the potential for him to be another Connor. Number 8. Michael Chandler the most recent high-profile acquisition by the UFC, Michael Chandler is arguably the biggest homegrown star that Bellator ever had, the promotion's three-time lightweight champion, and one of their most recognizable figures. He's got marketability written on his forehead, and the UFC gave Iron Mike a mega push right out of the gate. Chandler was controversially chosen as the backup for the lightweight title fight between Habib Nurmagomedov and Justin Gaethje, before he'd had a single UFC bout. Now, that fight went on as scheduled, and so Chandler made his official debut as the co-main event under McGregor Poirier 2 against number 6. 
six, Dan Hooker. Iron Mike took the win in half a round, and while impressive as hell, nobody thought he'd be fighting for the lightweight title next. But due to some unique circumstances, Habib vacating and Dustin taking that third Connor payday, the UFC said fuck it and put Mike in a vacant title bout with Charles Oliveira. Now, Olives was most definitely next in line for the title, but Chandler coming off the win against Hooker, sure, Gaethje had just lost to the Eagle, and El Kakui fell to Oliveira. Poirier and McGregor were occupied, but it didn't make Mike the clear number two to Charlie's number one. And so when that opportunity was awarded to Chandler at UFC 262, some felt like it was too much too soon, including Tony Ferguson, who fought as the co-main event on the same card, accusing Michael of both refusing to fight him and getting that Dana White privilege. Number seven, Chuck Liddell. The prodigal son, Dana White's right hand, who descended from MMA heaven to grace the octagon with vicious knockouts and era-defining mohawks. Chuck Liddell was a crucial part of the UFC's machine during the early 2000s when he would be at the peak of his career and popularity, and in large part he found himself in that position because of his incredible talent. But make no mistake, he was the first golden child. I mean, hell, Dana essentially managed him throughout his career unofficially after having been his actual manager prior to the UFC's acquisition from SEG. When their biggest star up to that point, Lighthouse heavyweight champion Tito Ortiz was avoiding the fight with Chuck, the UFC took Liddell's side, creating an interim belt to force Tito's hand. And when that fell through, Dana sent Chuck as the ambassador of the UFC, essentially, in the 2003 Pride Middleweight Grand Prix. A massive opportunity. When he returned after coming up short, he was finally given the Ortiz fight, then Vernon White was basically sacrificed to him while he waited for the rematch with Randy Couture. He was the UFC brand during that time period, and he absolutely deserved it, but that doesn't mean the promotion wasn't also doing everything they could for him. After his legendary title run, two stints as a coach on Tough, and 12 pay-per-view headlines, Chuck retired, in large part because of the concern by Dana White and the UFC for his health at that point, and the fact he was given a cushy front office position that he held until the promotion was bought out by WME IMG. Number 6, Holly Holm. After ending Ronda Rousey's bantamweight title reign and becoming a bit of a pop culture figure for a brief time as a result, it looked like Holly Holm's career was headed for the moon, especially with that lucrative rematch. But instead, the UFC allowed Holm to fight Misha Tate rather than wait for the big money, and as a result, she would lose the title at UFC 196. Next, Holm would be defeated by future flyweight queen Valentina Shevchenko, which prompted a title fight for the debuting featherweight strap at UFC 208 against Jermaine Durandamy. Yeah, that one doesn't make much sense besides the fact that Holm is a name, and they desperately needed one for that card to sell at all. She would controversially lose that bout, then return to bantamweight and KO Bechko Heya, which landed her a second featherweight title opportunity, this time against Chris Cyborg. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Following the defeat to Justino, Holly beat a debuting Megan Anderson at featherweight, which of course then prompted a bantamweight title fight with Amanda Nunes. Look, everybody loves Holly Holm, and I do get that she does carry name value on a marquee. She's one of the few fighters that casual fans recognize outside of the sport's major stars because of her link to Rousey, but those title opportunities definitely qualify her for this list. Now, Holm hasn't fought for a title since scoring her last two victories, but she looked fantastic against Irene Aldana, so I have to believe it's only a matter of time. Number five and number four, Sage Northcutt and Paige Van Zandt. The stories of Paige Van Zandt and Sage Northcutt, particularly when it comes to the topic of preferential treatment, are so intertwined that it only makes sense to include them together as a single double-length entry. Let's address the elephant in the room here. Paige and Sage, or MMA's Barbie and Ken as they were often referred to, are hot. They're hot people. They look better than you. Your significant other would probably cheat on you with them if given the opportunity. They look like they belong in a catalog selling overpriced clothes that don't come in any size above large. And because of their good looks, their clean-cut personas, and their perceived marketability, 
visibility to an audience outside the Just Bleed crowd, they were both given mega pushes in their early careers and pissed off a whole bunch of fighters and hardcore fans along the way. PVZ came first in 2014. She was supposed to be on Tough, but wasn't 21, and you know the Ultimate Fighter's gotta have that alcohol. So instead, she debuted against Kaylin Curran at Fight Night 57, where she would win via TKO, and then before her next fight be given an individual Reebok sponsorship, causing all kinds of resentment on the roster. Who is Paige Van Zant, and why, after we've had our sponsorships torn from us, is she getting one of the lucrative Reebok deals? Sage 2 would be given this deal as well in 2016, further filling the Grapes of Wrath. The 19-year-old Northcutt came into the promotion around the time Paige was sponsored by Reebok, the subject of Dana White's first episode of Looking for a Fight. And so the two were often spoken of collectively as the embodiment of the problem with the modern UFC, pushing marketable fighters over proven ones, and giving them big media opportunities outside the promotion, as well as seemingly favorable matchups in high-profile positions on big cards. Both Paige and Sage were only betting underdogs in a single fight of their entire UFC careers, sometimes massive favorites. Northcutt a minus 1,000 against Cody Pfister, Van Zant a minus 1,800 against Alex Chambers. Paige headlined in her fourth UFC bout, marquee a second card a year later, fought on three UFC on Fox main cards, was paired with Rachel Ostevich on the first ever ESPN show, and this is all with a final record in the promotion of five and four. Sage appeared on two UFC on Fox shows, UFC 200, and main carded both of PVZ's headlining events, further tying the pair together. He would leave the promotion after going six and two, his most notable win against Zach Otto, who went four and four in the UFC. Things would ultimately turn sour for both fighters, who sought more money and opportunities elsewhere, and while it certainly wasn't their fault the UFC decided they were the future of mixed martial arts before they'd ever been tested, or grew into who they were as fighters old enough to drink at a bar, their time in the promotion will always be noted for some of the most obvious preferential treatment the UFC has ever attempted. Number 3. Brock Lesnar in many ways, Brock Lesnar was the proto-Conor McGregor, the proto-Ronda Rousey. He was this massive star with massive appeal outside the UFC, and when the opportunity arose to put him in the highest profile bouts possible, the promotion did exactly that and hoped the Beast Incarnate would deliver. He largely did, but the UFC definitely helped him along the way as much as they could. Lesnar debuted against Frank Mir after a single pro bout. He fought a former champion in his second ever fight, and while that was a mistake as was evident by the knee bar, it was also an opportunity that would not be afforded someone with his experience if not for his pro-wrestling fame. Next, Lesnar would impressively handle Heath Herring at UFC 87, which prompted a heavyweight title challenge against Randy Couture. One and one in the UFC, his only victory against a guy two and two in the promotion led to a world title opportunity against a Hall of Famer. Even though there was already an interim champion in the division, a clear-cut challenger, Lesnar would defeat the much smaller Couture, though, and then headline the biggest show the promotion had ever had up to that time, UFC 100. The promotion rode that Brock wave until a pair of losses and his health would force Lesnar to retire, at least until UFC 200. Upon his return, Brock was allowed to forego the mandatory four-month period in the USADA testing pool, because you're not gonna not have Brock Lesnar on the biggest card of the year? Come on, what's the worst that could happen? Was he gonna fail three different drug tests? Joke's on you, he still got to fight before the results came in, and the card broke a million buys because of his inclusion. Number 2. Ronda Rousey the UFC literally only gave women a chance in the promotion because they thought Ronda Rousey was a star. So of course, she was going to be treated like the golden goose that she was when she entered the promotion as champion in 2013. Ronda certainly did her part by winning and winning spectacularly, and in return, the UFC put a marketing machine behind her the likes the sport had never seen and would only be surpassed by a certain Irishman. The full-on media blitz was insane. Ronda was everywhere, being interviewed in every magazine, on every TV show. She was in movies, she was on the cover of videos, 
video games, red carpet appearances. There was almost no way you could exist in the United States at that point in time, and not at the very least know who Ronda Rousey was. In terms of matchups, the UFC didn't really feel the need to protect Ronda, with of course the exception of a bout with Chris Cyborg, who whenever the two were brought up together, the promotion made quick work of giving a thousand reasons it shouldn't and couldn't happen. Ronda wanted time off. After she was defeated by Holly Holm, Rousey took a year off, but when she returned, wow did the UFC push that comeback hard. Fuck you, Amanda Nunes, who are you, what are you, the champion? This fight's all about Ronda. They produced this ridiculous commercial where she's in a mansion? Where was Amanda's mansion? Look, I get it, she was a massive star, but the lead-up to that bout was comically one-sided. It's not to say all the extra care from the UFC wasn't deserved through her impressive title run, but it was undeniable. Number 1. Conor McGregor when you're the biggest draw the sport has ever seen, of course you're going to get preferential treatment. Sorry, I'm late. I just don't give a fuck. Conor McGregor is a money-printing machine. There's never been anything even close to the guy in terms of star power in this sport. And as a result, the UFC has definitely bent over backwards at times to accommodate him. Let's run through some examples. Getting a title opportunity after defeating Dennis Seaver. How about that insane entrance at UFC 189 with Sinead O'Connor? That was for an interim title fight in an era where the UFC was not doing elaborate entrances. The world tour he went on with Aldo, who was that to the benefit of? The guy who can talk shit a mile a minute? Or the one who doesn't even speak English? After he won the featherweight title, they immediately let him have a shot at RDA's lightweight strap, completely unprecedented. BJ Penn had at least defended his lightweight title once before challenging GSP. You want an immediate rematch with Nate Diaz even though you're the reigning featherweight champion and you want to be at welterweight? Sounds great! Alright, you beat welterweight Nate Diaz and still haven't defended your featherweight title, here's a lightweight championship bout with Eddie Alvarez. Yes, you can go box in the prime of your career, fuck Anderson Silva. You've been gone for two years? No biggie. Here's an immediate title fight with Habib Nurmagomedov upon your return. And I haven't even got into his controversy the assaults, the bus incident, all of it met with either a slap on the wrist or was outright ignored by the promotion. The champ champ truly does what the fuck he wants. Big ol' shout out to my dude Luke Taylor for editing this video together. You can find him and his awesome digital art on Twitter at CoolToMe underscore. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.